Book Two, Part Five of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume One by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book Two. Part Five, Paragraphs ninety three to one hundred and fifteen. Fish that go in schools are seldom born in rivers. They are raised in the lakes, and this is how they behave. When the desire of spawning comes on them, they swim out to sea in schools, the males leading and throwing out their milt, while the females come after and swallow and conceive from it. When the females have grown heavy in the sea, then all the fish swim back to their own haunts. But the same no longer lead. Now the leadership goes to the females. They go before in a school, as the males had, and now and then throw off some of their eggs, which are like millet seeds, which the males devour as they follow. These millet seeds, or eggs, are fish. The fish that are reared come from the eggs that survive and are not devoured. Those fish that are caught while swimming seawards show bruises on the left side of their heads, those that are caught returning on the right side. This happens because they keep close to the left bank as they swim seawards, and keep to the same bank also on their return, grazing it and keeping in contact with it as well as they can. I suppose, lest the current make them miss their way. When the Nile begins to rise, hollow and marshy places near the river are the first to begin to fill, the water trickling through from the river, and as soon as they are flooded, they are suddenly full of little fishes. Where these probably come from, I believe that I can guess. When the Nile falls, the fish have dropped their eggs into the mud before they leave with the last of the water, and when, in the course of time, the flood comes again in the following year, from these eggs at once come the fish. So much, then, for the fish. The Egyptians, who live around the marshes, use an oil drawn from the castorberry, which they call kiki. They sow this plant, which grows wild in Hellas, on the banks of the rivers and lakes. Sown in Egypt, it produces abundant fruit, though malodorous. When they gather this, some bruise and press it, others boil after roasting it, and collect the liquid that comes from it. This is thick and useful as oil for lamps, and gives off a strong smell. Against the mosquitoes that are bound, the following have been devised by them. Those who dwell higher up than the marshy country are well served by the towers where they ascend to sleep for the winds prevent the mosquitoes from flying aloft. Those living about the marshes have a different recourse instead of the towers. Every one of them has a net, with which he catches fish by day, and at night he sets it round the bed where he rests, then creeps under it and sleeps. If he sleeps wrapped in a garment or cloth, the mosquitoes bite through it, but through the net they absolutely do not even venture. The boats in which they carry cargo are made of the acacia, which is most like the lotus of Cyrene in form, and its sap is gum. 
Of this tree they cut logs of four feet long, and lay them like courses of bricks, and build the boat, by fastening these four-foot logs to long and close-set stakes. And having done so, they set cross-beams athwart and on the logs. They use no ribs. They cork the seams within with biblis. There is one rudder passing through a hole in the boat's keel. The mast is of acacia wood, and the sails of biblis. These boats cannot move upstream unless a brisk breeze continues. They are towed from the bank, but downstream they are managed thus. They have a raft made of tamarisk wood, fastened together with matting of reeds, and a pierced stone of about two talents' weight. The raft is let go to float down ahead of the boat, connected to it by a rope, and the stone is connected by a rope to the after part of the boat. So, driven by the current, the raft floats swiftly and tows the baris, which is the name of these boats, and the stone dragging behind on the river bottom keeps the boat's course straight. There are many of these boats. Some are of many thousand talents burden. When the Nile overflows the land, only the towns are seen high and dry above the water, very like the islands in the Aegean Sea. These alone stand out the rest of Egypt being a sheet of water. So, when this happens, folk are not ferried, as usual, in the course of the stream, but clean over the plain. Indeed, the boat going up from Naucratis to Memphis passes close by the pyramids themselves, though the course does not go by here, but by the delta's point, and the town Kerkasaurus. But your voyage from the sea and Cannabis to Naucratis will take you over the plain near the town of Anthilla, and that which is called Archandrus's town. Anthilla is a town of some reputation, and is especially assigned to the consort of the reigning king of Egypt, to provide her shoes. This has been done since Egypt has been under Persian dominion. The other town, I think, is named after Archandrus, son of Theus the Achaean, and son-in-law of Danaus, for it is called Archandrus's town. It may be that there was another Archandrus, but the name is not Egyptian. So far, all I have said is the record of my own autopsy and judgment and inquiry. Henceforth I will record Egyptian chronicles, according to what I have heard adding something of what I myself have seen. The priests told me that Min was the first king of Egypt, and that first he separated Memphis from the Nile by a dam. All the river had flowed close under the sandy mountains on the Libyan side, but Min made the southern bend of it, which begins about twelve and one-half miles above Memphis, by damming the stream, thereby drying up the ancient channel and carried the river by a channel, so that it flowed midway between the hills. And to this day the Persians keep careful watch on this bend of the river, strengthening its dam every year to keep the current in, for were the Nile to burst its dikes and overflow here, all Memphis would be in danger of flooding. Then, when this first King Min had made dry land of what he thus cut off, he first found it in it that city which is now called Memphis, for even Memphis lies in the narrow part of Egypt, and outside of it he dug a lake from the river to its north and west, for the Nile itself bounds it on the east, 
and secondly he built in it the great and most noteworthy temple of Hephaestus. After him came three hundred and thirty kings, whose names the priests recited from a papyrus roll. In all these many generations there were eighteen Ethiopian kings, and one queen, native to the country. The rest were all Egyptian men. The name of the queen was the same as that of the Babylonian princess, Nitocris. She, to avenge her brother, he was king of Egypt, and was slain by his subjects, who then gave Nitocris the sovereignty, put many of the Egyptians to death by treachery. She built a spacious underground chamber, then, with the pretense of inaugurating it, but with quite another intent in her mind, she gave a great feast, inviting to it those Egyptians whom she knew to have had the most complicity in her brother's murder. And while they feasted, she let the river in upon them by a vast secret channel. This was all that the priests told of her, except that when she had done this, she cast herself into a chamber full of hot ashes to escape vengeance. But of the other kings they related no achievement or act of great note, except of Moiris, the last of them. This Moiris was remembered as having built the northern forecourt of the temple of Hephaestus, and dug a lake of as great a circumference as I shall later indicate, and built pyramids there also, the size of which I will mention when I speak of the lake. All this was Morris's work, they said. Of none of the rest had they anything to record. Leaving the latter aside, then, I shall speak of the king who came after them, whose name was Sosostris. This king, the priests said, set out with a fleet of long-ships from the Arabian Gulf, and subjugated all those living by the Red Sea, until he came to a sea which was too shallow for his vessels. After returning from there back to Egypt, he gathered a great army, according to the account of the priests, and marched over the mainland, subjugating every nation to which he came. When those that he met were valiant men, and strove hard for freedom, he set up pillars in their land, the inscription on which showed his own name and his country's, and how he had overcome them with his own power. But when the cities had made no resistance, and had been easily taken, then he put an inscription on the pillars, just as he had done where the nations were brave. But he also drew on them the private parts of a woman, wishing to show clearly that the people were cowardly. He marched over the country, doing this, until he had crossed over from Asia to Europe, and defeated the Scythians and Thracians. Thus far and no farther, I think, the Egyptian army went, for the pillars can be seen standing in their country, but in none beyond it. From there he turned around and went back home, and when he came to the Phasis river, that king, Sisostris, may have detached some part of his army, and left it there to live in the country, for I cannot speak with exact knowledge. Or it may be that some of his soldiers grew weary of his wanderings, and stayed by the Phasis. For it is plain to see that the Colchians are Egyptians, and what I say I myself noted before I heard it from others. When it occurred to me, I inquired of both peoples, and the Colchians remembered the Egyptians better than the Egyptians remembered the Colchians. The Egyptians said that they considered the Colchians part of Sisostris's army. I myself guessed it, partly because they are dark-skinned and woolly-haired, 
though that indeed counts for nothing, since other peoples are too. But my better proof was that the Colchians and the Egyptians and Ethiopians are the only nations that have, from the first, practised circumcision. The Phoenicians and the Syrians of Palestine acknowledge that they learnt the custom from the Egyptians, and the Syrians of the valleys of Thermodon and the Parthenius, as well as their neighbours, the Macrones, say that they learnt it lately from the Colchians. These are the only nations that circumcise, and it is seen that they do just as the Egyptians. But as to the Egyptians and Ethiopians themselves, I cannot say which nation learnt it from the other, for it is evidently a very ancient custom. That the others learnt it through traffic with Egypt, I consider clearly proved by this that Phoenicians who traffic with Hellas cease to imitate the Egyptians in this matter, and do not circumcise their children. Listen to something else about the Colchians, in which they are like the Egyptians. They and the Egyptians alone work linen, and have the same way of working it, a way peculiar to themselves, and they are alike in all their way of life, and in their speech. Linen has two names. The Colchian kind is called by the Greeks Sardonian. That which comes from Egypt is called Egyptian. As to the pillars that Sesostris, king of Egypt, set up in the countries, most of them are no longer to be seen. But I myself saw them in the Palestine district of Syria, with the aforesaid writing and the women's private parts on them. Also, there are in Ionia two figures of this man carved in rock, one on the road from Ephesus to Phokia, and the other on that from Sardis to Smyrna. In both places the figure is over twenty feet high, with a spear in his right hand, and a bow in his left, and the rest of his equipment proportional, for it is both Egyptian and Ethiopian, and right across the breast, from one shoulder to the other, a text is cut in the Egyptian sacred characters, saying, I myself won this land with the strength of my shoulders. There is nothing here to show who he is and whence he comes, but it is shown elsewhere. Some of those who have seen these figures guess they are Memnon, but they are far indeed from the truth. Now, when this Egyptian Sesostris, so the priests said, reached Daphne of Pelusium on his way home, leading many captives from the peoples whose lands he had subjugated, his brother, whom he had left in charge in Egypt, invited him and his sons to a banquet, and then piled wood around the house and set it on fire. When Sesostris was aware of this, he at once consulted his wife, whom, it was said, he had with him, and she advised him to lay two of his six sons on the fire and make a bridge over the burning, so that they could walk over the bodies of the two and escape. This Sesostris did. Two of his sons were thus burnt, but the rest escaped alive with their father. After returning to Egypt, and avenging himself on his brother, Sesostris found work for the multitude which he brought with him from the countries which he had subdued. It was these who dragged the great and long blocks of stone which were brought in this king's reign to the temple of Hephaestus, and it was they who were compelled to dig all the canals which are now in Egypt, and involuntarily made what had been a land of horses and carts, empty of these. For from this time Egypt, although a level land, 
could use no horses or carts, because there were so many canals going every which way. The reason why the king thus intersected the country was this. Those Egyptians whose towns were not on the Nile, but inland from it, lacked water whenever the flood left their land, and drank only brackish water from wells. For this reason Egypt was intersected. The king also, they said, divided the country among all the Egyptians by giving each an equal parcel of land, and made this his source of revenue, assessing the payment of a yearly tax. And any man who was robbed by the river of part of his land could come to Sisostris and declare what had happened. Then the king would send men to look into it, and calculate the part by which the land was diminished so that thereafter it should pay in proportion to the tax originally imposed. From this, in my opinion, the Greeks learnt the art of measuring land. The sun-clock and the sundial and the twelve divisions of the day came to Hellas from Babylonia, and not from Egypt. Sisostris was the only Egyptian king who also ruled Ethiopia. To commemorate his name, he set before the temple of Hephaestus two stone statues, of himself and of his wife, each fifty feet high, and statues of his four sons, each thirty-three feet. Long afterwards, Darius the Persian would have set up his statue before these, but the priest of Hephaestus forbade him, saying that he had achieved nothing equal to the deeds of Sesostris the Egyptian. For Sisostris, he said, had subjugated the Scythians, besides as many nations as Darius had conquered, and Darius had not been able to overcome the Scythians. Therefore it was not just that Darius should set his statue before the statues of Sisostris, whose achievements he had not equalled. Darius, it is said, let the priest have his way. When Sisostris died, he was succeeded in the kingship, the priest said, by his son Pharos. This king waged no wars, and chanced to become blind, for the following reason. The Nile came down in such a flood as there had never been, rising to a height of thirty feet, and the water that flowed over the fields was roughened by a strong wind. Then, it is said, the king was so audacious as to seize a spear and hurl it into the midst of the river eddies. Right after this he came down with a disease of the eyes, and became blind. When he had been blind for ten years, an oracle from the city of Buto declared to him that the term of his punishment was drawing to an end, and that he would regain his sight by washing his eyes with the urine of a woman who had never had intercourse with any man but her own husband. Pharos tried his own wife first, and as he remained blind, all women, one after another, when he at last recovers his sight, he took all the women who he had tried, except the one who had made him see again, and gathered them into one town, the one which is now called Red Clay. Having concentrated them together there, he burnt them and the town. But the woman, by whose means he had recovered his sight, he married. Most worthy of mention, among the many offerings which he dedicated in all the noteworthy temples for his deliverance from blindness, are the two marvellous stone obelisks, which he set up in the Temple of the Sun. Each of these is made of a single block, and is over one hundred and sixty-six feet high, and thirteen feet thick. 
Ferros was succeeded, they said, by a man of Memphis, whose name in the Greek tongue was Proteus. This Proteus has a very attractive and well-appointed temple precinct at Memphis, south of the temple of Hephaestus. Around the precinct live Phoenicians of Tyre, and the whole place is called the Camp of the Tyrians. There is in the precinct of Proteus a temple called the Temple of the Stranger Aphrodite. I guess this is a temple of Helen, daughter of Tyndarus, partly because I have heard the story of Helen's abiding with Proteus, and partly because it bears the name of the foreign Aphrodite, for no other of Aphrodite's temples is called by that name. When I inquired of the priests, they told me that this was the story of Helen. After carrying off Helen from Sparta, Alexandrus sailed away for his own country. Violent winds caught him in the Aegean, and drove him into the Egyptian sea, and from there, as the wind did not let up, he came to Egypt, to the mouth of the Nile, called the Canopic Mouth, and to the Salters. Now there was, and still is, on the coast a temple of Heracles. If a servant of any man takes refuge there, and is branded with certain sacred marks, delivering himself to the god, he may not be touched. This law continues to-day the same as it has always been from the first. Hearing of the temple law, some of Alexandrus's servants ran away from him, threw themselves on the mercy of the god, and brought an accusation against Alexandrus, meaning to injure him, telling the whole story of Helen, and the wrong done Menelaus. They laid this accusation before the priests and the warden of the Nile Mouth, whose name was Thonis. When Thonis heard it, he sent this message the quickest way to Proteus at Memphis. A stranger has come, a Trojan, who has committed an impiety in Hellas. After defrauding his guest-friend, he has come bringing the man's wife, and a very great deal of wealth, driven to your country by the wind. Are we to let him sail away untouched, or are we to take away what he has come with? Proteus sent back this message. Whoever this is, who has acted impiously against his guest-friend, seize him and bring him to me, that I may know what he will say. Hearing this, Thonis seized Alexandrus, and detained his ships there, and then brought him with Helen and all the wealth, and the suppliants too, to Memphis. When all had arrived, Proteus asked Alexandrus who he was, and whence he sailed. Alexandrus told him his lineage and the name of his country, and about his voyage, whence he sailed. Then Proteus asked him where he had got Helen. When Alexandrus was evasive in his story and did not tell the truth, the men who had taken refuge with the temple confuted him and related the whole story of the wrong. Finally, Proteus declared the following judgment to them, saying, if I did not make it a point never to kill a stranger who has been caught by the wind and driven to my coasts, I would have punished you on behalf of the Greek, you most vile man. You committed the gravest impiety after you had had your guest friend's hospitality. You had your guest friend's wife. And as if this were not enough, you got her to fly with you and went off with her. And not just with her either, but you plundered your guest-friend's wealth, and brought it, too. 
Now, then, since I make it a point not to kill strangers, I shall not let you take away this woman and the wealth, but I shall watch them for the Greek stranger, until he come and take them away. But as for you and your sailors, I warn you to leave my country for another within three days, and if you do not, I will declare war on you. End of Book 2, Part 5